0: Nathan is away from us today, you may have noticed that at this point, point. Um, and so we, uh, despite his absence, are going to continue our study on the book of Genesis. Uh, the last several weeks, we've been looking at, at God's plan, God's plan to, to rescue all of creation through an individual uh, named Abraham, um, to whom God made promises, grand promises even. Uh, the promise to, to make him into a great nation, and the promise to bless the entire world through him. Because one day, one of Abraham's descendants will be the Messiah, will be the one who, who, will, who will fix this broken creation. However, in order for these promises that God has made to come to pass, certain things have to happen. Because, there, for instance, there, there have to be descendants Okay? There have to be descendants for the Messiah to eventually come. And, and, and throughout Scripture, especially throughout the book of Genesis, we're already seeing that the tension is built into this story because in a broken, fallen, sinful world, the fulfillment of these promises is constantly being threatened. We've seen this with, with Abraham and Sarah's age, we've seen it with Abraham's sin, giving his wife away. A, we even see it with God's command to sacrifice Isaac, which we discussed last week. But in our passage for today, we're going to move to the, to the generations that follow Abraham, to his son Isaac, to Isaac's children, Jacob and Esau, and examine the, the threats to these promises that are presented there. And there are many. And so let us read God's word together. We'll begin in Genesis chapter 25, verses 19-19. We'll then take a look at at chapter 27, verses 1 through 29. You can find this on uh, pages 19 through 21 in your pew Bible. Genesis chapter 25, verse 19. Hear the word of the Lord. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethel, the Aramean of Padam Haram, sister of Laban the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And the children struggled together within her. And she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her, room, in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a, a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. And afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. And when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. And skipping over to chapter 27, verse 1. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. And he said, Behold, I am old, and I do not know the day of my death. So then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebecca was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebecca said to her son Jacob, "I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food, that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock" And bring me two young um, good young goats, so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat, so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself, and not a blessing." To his mother he said to him, let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go and bring them to me. So he went, took them, and brought them to his mother. And his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. And then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were in the house with her, and put them on Jacob, her son, and the skins of the young goats she had put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck and she put on his, the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went in to his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, "'How is it that you found it so quickly, my son?' He answered, "'Because the Lord your God granted me success.'" Then Isaac said to Jacob, "'Please come near, that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not.'" So Jacob went near Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, "'The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are that of Esau.'" And he did not recognize him, because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. And so he blessed him. He said, "Are you really my son Esau?" He answered, "I am." Then he said, "Bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you." And so he brought it near to him, and he ate, and he brought him wine and he drank. And then his father Isaac said to him, "Come near me and kiss me, my son, so that he may." And so he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him, saying, "See the smell of my son." Is as the smell of the field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let the people serve you and let nations bow down to you. Be lord over your brothers, and may you or your mother's sons bow down to you. Curse to everyone who curses you, and bless everyone who blesses you. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let me pray for us. Gracious God, this is your word. It is a word that, that could feel distant in terms of uh, cultural norms. Um, it could feel distant just because uh, of, of how counterintuitive it is. But Father, it is from you. We ask now that, that you would help us, help us by your Spirit uh, to understand it, to see Jesus in it, and even to be transformed by it. Work now in our midst, we pray. All in Christ's name. Amen. One of my favorite television shows, uh, it's really a show that's that's stood the test of time. It's been in syndication for a long, long time. TBS runs it constantly. Um, It's the show Seinfeld. that supposedly is about nothing. Um, then you have the big question: Is 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 can nothing be something? It's it's a fascinating show if you've never seen it. Uh, and the, and the four main characters of them, there, there's one that that I find particularly hilarious. Uh, it's the character George, jo- George Costanza, um, the man who is repeatedly referred to as a short, stocky, slow-witted, bald man um, throughout. The series George is constantly referred to as the as the butt of the joke. Um, he he is the one for whom the universe just will not smile. In um, one particular episode, George makes the following pronouncement: Every decision I've ever made in my entire life has been wrong. My entire life is the complete opposite of everything I want it to be. Every instinct I have in every aspect of life, be it something to wear, something to eat. It's all been wrong. And upon this realization, George does something drastic. Rather than trusting his instincts, he begins to do the opposite of every instinct he has. And all of a sudden, it's really funny, all of a sudden his life just turns out great. He starts dating this beautiful woman. He literally goes up to her and says, I'm unemployed, and I live in my parents' basement. And, and she goes out with him. It's, it's, it's really a funny scene. He gets a new job, which allows him to move out of his parents' house, all because, in his words, he is ignoring every urge towards common sense and good judgment that he's ever had. Life is going well all of a sudden for George Costanza. There are times when I read Scripture and George's impulse to no longer trust his instincts resonates with me as well. I read the events of what we just saw or the teachings of Jesus. We look back at the, at the Beatitudes. They are, they're counterintuitive. They're the opposite of what I think things should be, the way I would normally function. You know, we see blessed are the persecuted. Really? Blessed the persecuted? That's the opposite of what I would think. He who saves his life must lose it? The first shall be last? Really? I want to be clear here Um, in the words of the old hymn. Whatever my God ordains is right. What what God declares to be right and good is right and good because God is the definition of, of right and good. He is the standard he is the judge. But, but if we're honest, do you ever feel like what you're reading in Scripture is counterintuitive? And the reason I bring this up today is because the title of today's sermon is Backward Blessing. According to Merriam-Webster, the word backward refers to something that, that is in a reverse or contrary direction or way. And we see this in the story Of Jacob and Esau, which is a story of things being turned upside down. The older shall serve the younger. That is completely backwards from the custom of that day. The older got the inheritance. The older had priority, and yet that's not the way God says it's going to be. And throughout the lives of of Jacob and Esau, there would be this battle, this, this battle over priority, this battle for blessing, that, that turns everything upside down. And so this morning, I want us to, to see two points from our text. We had a long text there. Um, but I want us to just see two points. First, I want us to examine the backward people that God blesses. And then second, I want us to look at the backward way that he blesses them. First, the, the backward people that God blesses, and second, the backward way that he blesses them. First, the the backward people that God blesses. We find in Genesis chapter 25 through 27 is a family that is completely and totally dysfunctional. While we might read this passage and and sort of view Rebecca and Jacob, they're the bad guys, and and poor Isaac and Esau, they're the victims, there's a lot more going on here than, than just that. Isaac, for instance. Isaac is himself the child of promise. And he has this responsibility to to bless the future generations, to keep this thing going. But God has already made it clear that Jacob, not Esau, is the son of promise. He knows that. But Jacob isn't Isaac's favorite. Esau is. Because Esau is a man's man. He's got testosterone. He's hairy. He's a hunter, likes a good hearty meal. Something that he and Isaac have in common. And so this scene that we see right here, Isaac saying, go hunt, make me dinner, so that in exchange for food, I bless you. That is not just a a morally neutral act. It's actually an act of defiance towards God. Isaac knows what God wants. The older shall serve the younger, but he's just committed not to do that, not to give that blessing. And so Rebecca, Rebecca, upon gaining knowledge that Isaac is going to do what he's going to do, begins to actively work against her spouse. She begins to come up with her own plan to deceive her husband, to take advantage of Isaac when he's at his most vulnerable place. He's blind, and he's going to get Isaac to go in, pretend to be Esau, and get the blessing. And though Jacob is a little nervous at first, he's not nervous because he's worried about the moral implications of this. He's worried about getting caught. Because that's in his nature from the get-go has been to connive, to scheme. We saw it at his birth. Jacob's grabbing Esau's heel, thus his name, the name which means heel grabber, thus Jacob's name actually comes, becomes synonymous with this idea of being a, a deceiver, a supplanter. His name speaks to what he will do, ultimately, to his brother Esau. And, and speaking of Esau, what we see in this individual is a man who, who's not all that interested in the things of God. He's going to marry Canaanite women, much to the chagrin of his parents because of the, the implication for the future of their family. And in, this, in a passage that we, we skipped over, we, we read a lot, but we didn't read it all, we, we, we see Esau exchanging his birthright for a cup of soup. That's how much he valued God and his promises and his plan. Esau is portrayed as an individual who, who is after the immediate after instant gratification, at the expense of the big picture, at the expense of the long term. And at this point, he actually seems somewhat similar to Isaac in that, you know, they're really into food and really into eating, so much so that they're not really that concerned with the big picture. Now, Esau is also ready to accept something that technically he's already kind of sold off. And so, if we feel too sorry for Esau here, you know, he, he's, he already sold that for the soup. But now he's trying to get the blessing anyway. What I want us to see real quick is that there's not a single individual in this story who comes off as worthy of admiration. There's no hero in this story. It's like watching the show House of Cards. I don't know if you've seen it. I don't, I don't love it. And the reason I don't love it is just because it's just bad people being bad. There's no complexity to the characters, okay? And I sort of see the same thing here. There's nothing really good going on. And certainly that would be, as we spoke about earlier, a threat, right? Wouldn't that be a threat to the fulfillment of God's promises? He's working with this kind of people two generations in, and the people seem terrible. How is God going to fulfill his promises through these people? What's interesting about this, too, is that throughout the Old Testament, God's primary dealings are going to be with the nation of Israel. Israel is declared to be God's son. Israel is declared to be God's people. And this name Israel, it's a name that, in a few chapters from now, a chapter that we'll discuss at length, is actually the name given to this guy, Jacob. This guy, Jacob, is going to be Israel. The nation is going to be named after the deceiver, the heel grabber. If you were an Israelite, this guy, Jacob, is the, is the guy you're named after. This is the story of the guy your people was named after. Your founder dressed up in animal skins so that he could pretend to be his brother, take advantage of his blind father in cooperation with his deceptive mother. That's your origin. Think about this for a moment. Think about a company or or an organization or a team or, or, or maybe, think about this, think about the nation that I assume most of us are citizens of. Think about our founding, the founding of anything that you're associated with that you really like and value. When you consider the founding of whatever that is, most likely you're going to turn to thoughts of, of, of the noble motivations that, that got them started or, or the sacrifices that they made in order for this group to exist or, or, or how they, they overcame obstacles with honor and with dignity. Now, because we all are sinners and we, we understand that, that human beings are sinners, if we're honest, we can admit that, that there may be aspects of any story that, that we wouldn't be proud of. But, but we tend to, to accentuate the positive on those things that, that we value because, because we want to highlight the best of who we are, right? We want to highlight the, the ideals that we're supposedly about. But what if we did say a, a Mount Rushmore of the characters in this story that we just read? Rebecca, Jacob, Esau, and Isaac. And that's your, that's your origin. That's what you're looking back. What, it, what would it say about the kind of nation you are if that's what you're looking at? if your founder's name is synonymous with deceiving people, it seems like that would be a little tougher to build your identity around. And yet that's exactly what happened. Because by choosing Jacob, choosing Israel, God is highlighting something very, very important. See, Esau had the credentials, right? He's the firstborn. And frankly, though he may be... Impetuous, a little less savvy, perhaps. He was a more likable guy. I mean, commentators joke about the fact that that the narrator of this story seems to like Esau a lot more than he does Jacob. He's not the guy we would choose, Jacob. And that's God's choice. Tim Keller puts it this way. God brings his scandalous grace into the lives of people who don't seek it, don't deserve it, continually resist it, and don't even appreciate it after they've been saved by it. That's Jacob. And as crazy as it may seem to us, God is going to assemble a motley crew of Jacob's to be recipients of his grace. And that's the point. That's the point. And this is good news. It is good news for people like Jacob. It's good news for people who, who, due to whatever circumstances, you're not socially in a position to excel or thrive according to the ways of the world. It's good news for people who have the, the deck stacked against them. Or they're like Jacob in that, It's good news for people who are a mess. People who come in here today, for instance, have done terrible things, things that you're ashamed of. You're filled with guilt and shame. Your life is a mess. And God looks at those people and says, that's my people. That's my son. That's my bride. And if that describes how you feel here today Then the gospel is for you. That's the point. That's the point in choosing Jacob. But how? How is this possible? Brings us to our second point for the day the backward way God blesses. What makes our story even crazier is the fact that it actually works. What they they scheme up works. Jacob actually gets the blessing, and he doesn't get the blessing in spite of his deception. He gets the blessing through his deception, through pretending to be someone else. Now, to be clear, I mean, as the text plays out, you're going to see that that this sin causes really, really, really big damage, okay? So God is not looking at this and going, well, all's well that ends well. I mean, that's not... That's not what we see here. Um, Rebecca's never going to see Jacob again. Like the hostility between Jacob and Esau, that's going to be that's I mean, the next two sermons. Um, that's where we're going with all of this. And, and so I don't want to play this up as if, oh, who cares, kind of thing. But but there's a reason why the Bible sometimes. I mean, you know, I've, I've seen this especially. I've got like children and there's children's stories, children's versions of the Bible. Sometimes you. You see the Bible sort of turned into kind of this, this morality tale, right? Um, just, just, you know, something to teach your kids how to be good people. Well, if, if, if there's, what's the moral of this story, if that's the case? The moral of the story is manipulate, lie, and steal, and you win, you know? Um, <laughs> that's not the point. <laughs> it can't be the point. I want us to step back for a moment and, and try to understand this guy Jacob for a second. What's he after? You could say that he wants wealth. He wants status. He wants the influence of being the firstborn. I would argue that there's something more going on here. Notice chapter 25, verse 28. Look back if you would. Chapter 25, verse 28. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebecca loved Jacob. The dynamic that was up and running in this family from birth all the way through adulthood was a clear favoritism shown to different children by different parents, and it was toxic. Recently, I've begun listening to a podcast called This American Life. I'm curious, how many of you have heard of This American Life? You, we, we know, okay, this is on your radar. Okay, tell sort of short stories about interesting people and events. And, and just a couple of weeks back, one of the stories had to do with one of the contributors' father, an 80-year-old man named Buzz. And, and the relationship that, that he had, Buzz had, with his older brother, the storyteller's uncle, Uncle Sheldon. As long as the storyteller could remember, his father hated his uncle. A feeling that was, that was mutual. And so for, for over 40 years, they had barely spoken to one another, and just the mention of the other one's name brought out extreme feelings of animosity. And so with these men, they're, they're both in their 80s now. One lives in Montreal, the other one lives in Florida. And the storyteller is desperate to try to get these two men into a room together one last time to make amends. One lives in Canada, the other one in Florida, like I said, and both of them, they have all the excuses in the world, but somehow the storyteller convinces them to meet, convinces them to get in a room. So he and his father, they drive down to Florida, and they pay him a visit. And the interaction, it's, it's priceless. I mean, at some points it's, it's, it's hilarious, at other points you know, it's hostile. But just to completely spoil it for you, um, what happens as these men begin reminiscing is that something comes out that, that really neither of them seem to have like, etched in their mind as the origin of all the problems. But when they were children and their parents were going through sort of a messy separation or whatever, the mother chose one and not the other to live with him, to live with her. And everything else, for the next 75 years, everything else between Buzz and Sheldon um, was a manifestation of what was perceived to be parental favoritism of one and not the other. What Jacob was after in doing this What was so elusive to him throughout the entirety of his life, what he wanted more than anything else, was the approval, the acceptance, and the affection of his father. He'd never had it before. And the only way that he knew how to get this approval was to dress up and to pretend to be someone else for his father's acceptance. For his father's blessing, and it's ridiculous. I mean, this story is ridiculous, right? We read it and we go, like, what in the world? But I mean, as as ridiculous as it may seem, it's when you see it through that lens, it's devastating. But as sad as this image is, I mean, is it not something that we can all, on some level, relate to? Can we not all on some level admit to doing the same thing, to, to, to be so desperate after the approval of other people that, that we dress up, that we pretend to be something other than what we actually are, that all of us have this sort of nagging insecurity, this need to, to prove ourselves to other people? I mean, prior to my time here at GCC, I was working with high school students. And the high school students are notoriously the most insecure people in the world, right, right, right behind pastors. Um, but that's a whole other thing. Um, and so, you know, having these conversations with kids, and they're just, they're just wearing their insecurity just all on their sleeve. And I remember having a conversation with one student uh, about the song Blank Space by Taylor Swift. Here's my Taylor Swift reference to make me seem... <laughs> Contemporary. citing um, a, th- a three-year-old song, that, that, that's, my, that's the best I got. Um, but at some point, yeah, Taylor Swift says this, find out what you want and be that girl for a month. In other words, remake your identity in order for someone else to accept you, in order for somebody else to like you. And the student really pointed out and said, that's, that's me, that's what I, that's what I do. And, and, and the comment was like, does this, does this quit? When, when does this stop? <laughs> I said, it hadn't stopped for me yet. The notion that we'll, we'll eventually grow out of that. We'll eventually grow out of feeling insecure. It hadn't stopped for me yet. This quest for an identity that I can cling to, this quest to matter, that's something that on some level, I think, belongs to all of us. The the notion that we have to prove ourselves. The the notion that we have to, to compensate for what is lacking. Because deep down, we feel shame. We feel embarrassed. Because we believe that deep down, if people knew what's really going on with us, if they knew us, that they would reject us. Where does that come from? The Christian story tells us that it comes from the fact that we were made in the image of God. We were made to find our identity, our acceptance, through our relationship with our maker who loves us. But having having rejected him, having sought after an identity elsewhere, we are left feeling profoundly insecure and are looking for something out there to make it seem like it's okay. And so we dress up. We play pretend, just like Jacob. This past weekend, I, I had the privilege of of getting to officiate a wedding of two of my former interns. And and I'll be honest, I love weddings. I do. I love weddings. I, I had this sort of dream that one day I could be like the officiant and the wedding singer in the same one. Um, my End of the Mystic by Van Morrison is... It's strong. Um, just saying. Um, but a while back, I, I was talking to somebody, and, and they made the comment that they didn't really care for weddings. I really couldn't make sense of it. I didn't understand what they were saying, because I do. I love weddings, and I think for most of us, we like weddings. Um, and I think that we, we like them because it's a big deal, and, and certainly we have affection for the, for the bride and the groom. But I want to make the argument that, that there's a reason why We like it. that goes deeper because it's actually what all of creation is moving towards. It's what human history is moving towards. It's what the Bible is all about. At the beginning of the Bible, there's a wedding. Throughout Scripture, God is compared to a bridegroom, pursuing his bride, and then Scripture culminates with a wedding. God marrying his bride... And over and over and over again, when the people of God are compared to a bride, how she looks is consistently pointed out. Okay? You know, the idea that looks don't matter. I mean, God comes off as kind of superficial here. I mean, he's going, yeah, my bride looks excellent. Over and over again. Revelation says she's adorned with fine linen. Ephesians says she's in splendor. She's without spot or wrinkle or blemish. Isaiah comments on her jewels and then says that she's clothed with the garments of salvation, which we saw in our call to worship this morning. Clothed with the garments of salvation. And it gets to the reason why the beauty of the bride is so emphasized. Over and over and over again in Scripture, God's people have shown themselves to not be this beautiful picture of beauty. And yet, despite all of our defilement, we are told again and again and again, we are beautiful. God thinks we're gorgeous. And he thinks we're gorgeous because of our spouse, because we are adorned with his righteousness, his righteous robe. And friends, that is the gospel that you and I, people who deceive and manipulate and lie like Jacob, who are filled with the same kind of guilt and shame, it's playing out in how we live, that we can be completely known by a God who thinks we're gorgeous, who knows us completely, warts in awe, and deeply, deeply loves us has deep affection for us through Jesus, who was himself the firstborn, the firstborn of all creation, the one who lived a perfect life, deserved the blessing of his father and instead received the curse, the curse that we deserve, so that we, insecure, deceptive, rebellious people, people who are like Jacob, can receive the blessing can experience the smile of our Father, which, by the way, is is completely backwards. That's not the way that it's supposed to be. It's not what we deserve. It's all of grace. Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. And It's here where we've got to find our identity. It's here we've got to look back to again and again and again and again because I am so desperate, like I said, pastors are... Extremely insecure, high schoolers, you, all of us. So insecure, so looking to to quantify our value by our performance, our bank account, whatever, so that people will like us, so that people will accept us, dressing up rather than looking to Jesus and finding our identity there. The gospel tells me that I am accepted, that I am loved, that I am forgiven, not because of my efforts, not because of my status, not because of the image that I portray, but because of Jesus. It's completely backwards, but it's absolutely beautiful. And it's where we can find true and meaningful life. Please pray with me. Gracious God, we confess to you that, that, that we do. We see the world backwards. We don't see the world the way that you portray it. And we desperately need to be reminded of it again and again and again, that you love sinners, you love the undeserving, you justify the ungodly, and you tell us we're gorgeous, you tell us we're beautiful. We pray all in Christ's name. Amen.